one of the things with a lot of drum machines now is you can have a little basically like an error percentage that it will sort of randomly have it be a little bit above or behind by a certain percentage and you can kind of see oh, make that. it sound yeah. like this make much of a human like, yeah the yeah. robots are already ahead of the game <laughs> they really are <laughs> how many beers has this robot had <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends and musicians get together to discuss an album from Robert Dimery's list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So each week, we pick an album at random from that list, we listen to it, we analyze it, we do some deep dives, and ultimately give you our opinions on whether or not you need to hear the album before you die. At the end of the episode, we'll all vote and pick next week's album. Now, if you haven't had time to listen to this week's album, don't worry. We're going to have plenty of clips that will drop in along the way, as well as a playlist that we'll include in the episode notes. So before we get any further, I want to remind you, dear listener, that if you're enjoying what we do here, go ahead and like or subscribe or write a review on your favorite podcasting platform, or better yet, tell a friend about us. We appreciate all the help in spreading the word. So before we jump into the music, though, I want to throw things over to Rob. Question mark. Do we have any have any fan mail in the fan bag, in the mail bag, in the fun bags there? What do we got? <laughs> Anything? No, no, nothing today. No. So this might be our hottest episode yet for two reasons. One, it's about 90 degrees in the studio here, and I'm wearing headphones that may as well be rubber earmuffs. The second reason... <laughs> is that this week we've been listening to the debut album from a man that Pitchfork described as equal parts Marvin Gaye and LL Cool J. That's right, it's the 1995 album Brown Sugar by musician, singer, songwriter, and coolest guy in the room, D'Angelo. So wait, would that make him equal parts Marvin Gaye and LL Cool J? Would that make him LL Cool Gay? And (laughs) if so, can I start a if that is not taken tribute. i'm going to start a tribute band where <laughs> we're all in drag and we just do a bunch of like you know mid 90s rap songs dibs all right i'm going to go copyright that little service mark there all right we're going to jump right into the music and then we'll come back with our introductions and our tweet length reviews so here it is the opening track called brown sugar All right, there you have it. Let's work our way around the room with some introductions who we have in the studio this week. Hey, this is Rob here, and my tweet-length review of Brown Sugar is, this is mood music, 
and I'm not in the mood. Ooh, <laughs> all right. This is Tom here. My tweet length review is that this is smash music and kudos to D'Angelo <laughs> if he can smash for this whole album because it felt like it was about seven hours long. <laughs> <laughs> Getting into sting territory there. <laughs> Fantastic. This is Adam. And my quick review is that you just don't need that much falsetto. Oh, God. He's, he's got a bag of tricks and he keeps going to the well. Uh, is again it, is it really a bag him. of tricks? Is it maybe like a back pocket of tricks? Like, I don't, I don't know if we're giving a whole bag. Here. It's, a little, it's a little mini pocket on your jeans. <laughs> Knapsack. <laughs> so some quick history on our good friend D'Angelo here is that he he's considered one of the big influences on the neo-soul movement. So to quickly talk about neo-soul, you have to first talk about what soul music is. And we usually associate that with the 1950s, 1960s artists like Etta James, Ray Charles, Solomon Burke, James Brown. In general, we're talking about gospel and blues roots coming out of this. So soul music itself kind of splintered off into a bunch of uh, genres. You got Motown, more flavors. You got Memphis soul, New Orleans, all the way down. So now we jump forward into the 80s and 90s, and we've got this new neo-soul sound starting to emerge. Generally characterized by actual instruments, which at the time in the 90s for R&B was pretty out there. Uh, you didn't have a whole lot of people laying down actual musical tracks and using real instruments on this stuff. So if you've listened to the album, you've heard Wurlitzers, you've heard a lot of Rhodes in there, you've heard some Hammond organ you got a, a lot of uh, organic drum beats. Another note, too, kind of in that Lenny Kravitz realm, is that D'Angelo played nearly everything on this album, uh, which I, I thought was pretty cool. And apparently, I, I know we've had discussions before about whether or not that's the, the quickest way to, to get an album done, but maybe it is if you're fighting with people. But also, he is every voice on the album is D'Angelo. Yes. Right? Every single voice. I was a little bummed because I saw that Raphael Sadiq was involved and about halfway through the album, I was hoping to hear his voice because I like Raphael Sadiq's uh, voice from Tony, Tony, Tone. He, I think he just helped produce or maybe just straight up gave D'Angelo one of the songs that's later on the album. So yeah, it's all his voice all the time. So I got to correct you on that. It is Tony, Tony, Tony not Tony, Tony, Tone. There is an accent mark over that last E that says you might God, a hard what? E. It is Tony, please, Tony, what, Tony. Please, Adam. Here, here, what, yeah. what? How dare you enter the ring with Tom? 90s street cred have I lost here in my, uh, in my R&B knowledge. I apologize. Not a problem. I, I have to say, I made the comment earlier about, you know, his voice is the only voice on the album. To its detriment, most certainly. I was so overloaded with d'angelo by the end of this album there's some times where there's like nine different d'angelo's coming them, yeah. at you and you're like dude yeah. just pull it back neo soul i i'm never i wasn't a huge neo soul fan but this particular version of neo soul i particularly don't like because how are you going to have soul music with no emoting there's like no emoting on this album at all. And you listen to those old soul singers. And the reason that is killer is because you have a great singer who's out mm -hmm. there and he's laying on the line and you're really getting a sense of the pathos that's happening. And this, I didn't get that at all. I really didn't. I think one of the things that comes with 
or one of the reasons that that you don't get a lot of emotion out of this is his reliance on that falsetto, right? Falsetto is one trick in your bag of tricks that you use to get to a high note, but you don't actually emote. And I've said this a hundred times, right? And you guys are probably sick of hearing it, but you don't really truly hear someone's voice until you hear their chest voice and they're pushing it. And he never does that on this entire album. So I, I get it, Tom. I, I, I definitely can, can, uh, and sympathize with that that sentiment there. Yeah, it was a little in love with its laid backness. I felt like he was on Quaaludes and high on weed the entire time, and that what that makes you say that? <laughs> <laughs> the soul, the the band, the backing band, which I guess is all him too, was so chill and just vamping over these two and three chord patterns. <laughs> it felt like a, it felt like soul band plug in one from Ableton Live or something. <laughs> And talk about vamping. Good Lord. Does he just take a chorus and play it for not like we got to come up with a term for that. There's the super chorus where you play a chorus like twice or like one and a half times. Mm -hmm. What do you call it when you do the chorus like nine times in a row for the end of the song? For an additional three and a half minutes. Yeah. And like, listen, I love ELO. They do that all the time, but they still try to they still manage to like drop the drums out and put claps. Like there's they have more tricks to make it seem like it's not just the same thing over and over and over again. But yeah, vamping like a son of a bitch on this stuff. <laughs> so I think we need to address the elephant in the room here. Okay. All right. So I, I'd like to, let's, let's just do a role play. The marketing execs trying to pitch D'Angelo to, to the record executives. Tom, you be, you be D'Angelo's representation okay. and I'll be the, I'll be the execs trying to figure out if this guy's a good, good hit. I see. Okay, I, I I like I like what you're I like what you're saying here, Tom. Is uh, this guy sounds cool? Does he have any other guys in the band like that you sing awesome harmony with, like Boys to Men? Like they're they're doing pretty well. No, just him, all him, all Understood. the time. Okay, all right. You know what? That's okay. It's okay. Does he have like a crazy vocal range, like a Tony Braxton type? <laughs> I mean, it's high. I, it's pretty high. I'll give him that. Are you like maybe you're paired with like an amazing songwriter, like Babyface? He's having great success right now. Oh no, no, no. Almost entirely him. Yeah. Okay. I'm not I'm having a hard time with it. All right. I know you know what? I got it. Are you doing totally new music that the world has not even heard before? Like a Lauren Hill, Fuji's type thing? No, no, not really. Kind of just uh <laughs> taking some old stuff. If we do a Smokey Robinson song, it's pretty great. <laughs> Interesting. What what do you guys have exactly? Have I shown you his crunch routine? <laughs> it's pretty intense. <laughs> All right, sign this guy immediately. <laughs> yeah. Well, so here's the funny thing about that. All right. The muse for this album um, was a woman named Angel Angie Stone, Angela Stone. Sure, right, right. Who was 14, 15 years older than him when he was, uh, when they first got together. Well, not, I mean, the entire time they got together too, because that's how ages work. But um, <laughs> she was kind of his, his muse helped him write it. And she has said in interviews that when she first met him, he was a nerd, like glasses, dressed like shit, awkward, shy, not a sex symbol at all. Total nerd. I could totally see that. From, from, from his backstory, I can definitely see that. And then he got turned into a sex symbol and he did not like that at all and there is a great quote that quest love talks about because quest love on the uh, voodoo tour was yep. uh, the leader of his band 
And at the end of the tour, D'Angelo says, fuck this. As soon as we're done, I'm going to go in the woods, drink some hooch, and get fat. And apparently he just did exactly that. Wow. Became kind of an alcoholic and, you know, had some really serious personal problems. But he was like, this routine is like, you hear all these movie stars talk about it. Like, you can't maintain that level of, like, he would be like, people would be screaming at him to take his shirt off at shows. He's like, I'm not doing that because I'm not doing 80 crunches, like, right before I get on stage and not drinking water. So I'm shredded, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. That was for the photo shoot. Every good singer wants is no is dehydration as soon as you hit the stage. That is a re- <laughs> recipe for success right there. Well, that's that that is interesting. I didn't know that he was. I mean, that felt like a marketing angle, of course. But the fact that he was he was turned into or positioned that way is interesting to me because he came from a a church background, right? His father was yeah. a preacher or something. So it's kind of kind of like the Marvin Gaye thing. Yeah, classic gospel chops where he came yeah. up in the church. And had that idea, kind of a one take, one take uh, kind of guy. Like the idea when you were in church, he was saying, is that you're doing it for the Lord. You're not doing it for yourself. So don't get all highfalutin about how you sound. Do it for God. So hmm. when he would go into the studio, yeah, he said, well, it's according one to D'Angelo. T- one take of him layered 17,000 <laughs> times. Each of those 17,000s was only one take. <laughs> right. <laughs> Boosh. <laughs> so he started playing piano at age three. At age 13, his father took him to, I guess, the University of Virginia, where he took some music theory courses. He ultimately wound up in front of uh, Ellis Mar- Marsalis, uh, father of Winton and Branford, for kind of a uh, an audition as to see if he would you know, take him on to be a jazz student. He, he, he said no. The way D'Angelo describes it, he was just so ahead of the curve that mm. he, he didn't want to take him as a student. I'm like, huh, okay. Hmm. But anyway, he he keeps playing. He winds up being the DJ with a high school band. He said that he his his love of this old music came because he was the DJ. One of his friends' fathers had a library of old vinyl from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And instead of just looking for breakbeats, he would go in and, and four hours later, he would have just listened to like six albums. So he kind of got his his musical background from that library of vinyl. He starts doing the, the talent show circuit, which is apparently a thing. He he and a buddy get onto Apollo Amateur Hour in 1991 when he was 17. They did well. They won. He got a 500 bucks. The first thing he did is he went out and bought a four-track tape recorder and a keyboard. And basically, in 1991, 1992, when he was 18 years old, essentially wrote the music and lyrics for most of what we hear on Brown Sugar. So before we get too deep into trash in this guy, I just want to be clear that the record is completely sort of inoffensive. Like he and he has a great voice. I, I I'm prepared to give him some compliments. I actually like this album, so I'm 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 not going to shit on it the whole time. But I, I but I think what we're arguing for right from the jump, right, is essential versus inessential. And I do find that this suffers from being kind of a nostalgia exercise. That's what it feels like to me. Is it? It's very much of a throwback. I know it was intentionally a throwback. He's trying to sound like the soul singers of yore, and you hear that in the Wurlitzer, and you hear that in the Watt guitar, and you hear that in the falsetto backups. And he does a very passable facsimile of those things. It's just that nothing about that is particularly new. Well, I will say to as somewhat of a counterpoint to that that this is heralded as 
a progenitor of this neo soul movement that came out. Which, by the way, speaking of Fuji's, Lauren Hill was included in that neo soul movement that came out, like when she was sort of post Fuji's. I was never a gigantic fan of neo soul, but this seems like I, I can give it credit for being the first step in that neo soul journey. But this on its own doesn't do it for me. If it was in a vacuum, I would say that I'm not really, it doesn't really do it for me, but I will also echo what was said before. He's a great instrumentalist, like the music on here, some of the backup stuff that he does and some of the, the bass, um, not, not actual bass because I'm, I'm like 90% sure that most of this is synth bass, but Key, uh, yeah, yeah. um, but the bed tracks are good. <laughs> I, I mostly agree. I mean, we're back at the myth of the multi-instrumentalist. And I have to ask, I was searching this record for virtuosity on on other instruments. He's a good keyboard player, for sure. Mm-hmm. And he's a good singer. I'm not really hearing it anywhere else. He can be a good composer. There are some songs that have good composition, but a lot of them are just very standard go ahead, hit vamp on two or three chords and, you know, slight modifications for the chorus. There's one song in particular that I think is actually very well constructed and super jazzy, but the rest of them, I think, are. Yeah, I think I noticed that. I think I noticed that one tune as well. And speaking of vamping, even his vocals seem like vamping most of the time. Like he didn't really, it's lyrically bereft, we can say. To kind of tie into that whole instrumentation thing, I do think he's a solid drummer. And I think the way he plays is this really, I mean, it's almost drunk behind the beat. It's a very odd, like super pocket. And it, it's really its own sound, which I, I totally dig. There's a story about Questlove as well, where Questlove wanted to get onto that Voodoo album and on that tour. And so... At one of the Roots shows, he saw that D'Angelo was there. And so he started trying to play this like super drunk, laid back pocket beat. And the rest of the Roots were like, what the hell are you doing? Like he was trying to catch D'Angelo's attention from the stage, which I thought was a fun story. I do think it sounds super loose and it benefits this type of super vampy music. I can see why the Roots would be like, we're tight. Why are you playing loose? We're very right. tight. Like we're like a remarkably <laughs> right. tight we band. Hang our hats yeah. on. What are you doing? Yeah. One other cool thing that I I think coming out at the time he did, and this has a lot of parallels, Rob, to Lenny Kravitz, right? Yeah, sure. deliberately in in the face of what was popular and what was selling at the time in R and B. So D'Angelo comes in with this almost anti pop sensibility when it comes to to soul and r&b by the way d'angelo hates being called neo soul right don't put him in a box baby it's the dylan thing don't put me in a box but he had this quote about r&b at the time and 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 here it is he says uh well i'd like to say right now that there's a new consciousness among black kids about the possibilities of instruments he said and this is right before voodoo came out in 2000 And maybe I had something to do with that. People like Puffy and those other artists who rely on samples, I just don't see that sticking around much longer. Puffy says he's bringing back those old guys to the kids, but he knows he ain't doing it for that reason. That's just some alibi he cooked up. He knows half of those kids he sells to will think he came up with what Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire first thought of. I was like, oh, damn. Sliding those samples in, acting like it's his own. I am am here for the 
I'm here for the shit talk on Puff Daddy all day long. Yeah. <laughs> but can we talk about the worst prognostication in the history of prognostication? I don't think these samples are going to stick around for too much longer. No, they're done, man. I'm, yeah. I'm giving them another year yeah. along well, with Harold Camping and the end of the world. Though that, that quote does help recast him a little bit in my mind in a helpful way. If he even felt that his goal was to bring instruments back to the black community and to black music in the in the shadow of 15 years of hip hop. I'm not saying he's in any way responsible for that, but that's a, you know, that's a reasonable goal and a and an admirable goal, so to speak. Not being a member of the black community, I feel like I don't have a ton of legs to stand on here, but I think that it's a little reductive to say that there hasn't been instrumentation in the black community again, because it's mostly church driven. You know, it's like all the kids that go to church, the organ play. They're not playing samples at church. They're still doing live singing and live bands. <laughs> no, and no. Like but yeah. I, I mean, I just meant in what was in the, the most popular music through the eighties and nineties, which, which was hip hop, which didn't rely on a ton of human instrumentation. Sure, it relied sure. more on drum machines and samples. That's Absolutely. All. Unless you talk about the roots who, as uh, black thought has stated, got their contract in 1993. So, you know, <laughs> damn, they were doing oh, it for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Boosh. There you go. There you go. So this album came out on July 3rd of 1995. Uh, it sold 300 albums in the first two weeks and went platinum one year into its sale. Did Wait, you mean 3 million? 300,000. 300,000 in the first two weeks oh, and then okay. a, a million over the first year. You said, I thought you said 300 albums in the first two weeks. I was <laughs> like, I mean, that's, that's better burn. than I've done, but still. Slow burn. <laughs> uh, so this album was was produced by D'Angelo and a guy named Bob Power. You might know or maybe recognize the name Bob Power. He was an engineer on the Tribe Called Quest album, Low End hmm. Theory. Hell yeah. It's a great, great engineer name right there. Yeah, Bob, there Power. Bob Power. Bob yeah. Power, yes. Power. <laughs> he also plays guitar in this album a couple of times, in a couple of places. He too, does. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, which by the way, I loved researching this. They're like he was a uh, an an engineer on the on the low end theory, the Sergeant Peppers of hip hop albums. Yeah. Like, you got to oh throw that God. in everywhere. Sergeant yeah, Peppers is goddamn everything. Please. Right. <laughs> so at the time on the charts in 1995, the top R&B hits you had TLC, Brandy, Montel Jordan, Shaggy, R. Kelly, Tupac, Biggie, Jodeci. So all of that was very producer-driven, very electronic. Again, just you know, kind of showing that D'Angelo was trying to push back against that trend. Well, and I think a lot of those were, like you talk about producer-driven, those were not songwriters predominantly. Those were, well, Biggie. Biggie they're all performers, yeah. 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 Biggie, I'm not, I, I will take nothing away from Biggie, and I will, I will brook no person who takes anything away from <laughs> Biggie. That's, you know, let, let's just let that one lie but i think most of those people especially in the more r&b side were just having songs written for him and they were just like you said they're the performers they're the eye candy d'angelo sure. i will give him credit for it and this is this is what i've talked about before like the person who must be the most pissed off about the way that popular music went is fucking mariah carey because she was beautiful and insanely talented and wrote Almost all of us. Shoot, all I want for Christmas is you in like 25 minutes. Like, I can't stand <laughs> that song because it's so ubiquitous around the holidays, but that's a damn good song. And I thought that would have been a, a, a team of 35 people writing that. It was her and one dude in a room. Wow. Over the course of like a half an hour. And 
it it became this sort of like, well, other people will just write the music and all you have to do is be able to sing and dance. And then it became other people <laughs> write the music for you and all you have to do is be able to dance because we're going to auto-tune that. And then it's like, listen, we'll get you a dance teacher, right? How good looking right. are you? Okay, yeah, we're fine. <laughs> just, sta- <laughs> yeah. just stand there. <laughs> all right, let's 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 jump into some of these songs here. So let's throw it back to that opening track. Here's a little bit more of Brown Sugar. Skin is caramel with the cocoa eyes Even got a big sister by the name of Chocolate Top Brown sugar, babe I guess how awful love don't know how to behave Adam, I think you might have played the same clip of that song again. <laughs> so you mean to tell me it, it does the same thing for four and a half minutes? I, I wrote down that it was so repetitive in the hook that you could believe it was itself sampled. Yeah. Like it sounds like a DJ just playing that one snippet of a record again and again and again. Dude, he gives up on the changes with 90 seconds left to go in a four and a half minute song. So for the last one third of the song, he just repeats the chorus again and again and again and again and again. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Well, and and in this case, the chorus is one is like one bar long. It's not like it's an extended yeah. array of chords or anything. Yeah, that's right. I like this track. I thought coming in out of the gate, that intro is very cool and immediately grabbed my attention. I had I had, I don't know that I've heard anything quite like that. It's this weird interval. It's there's just like a maybe a tambourine going on in the background. It's a little soundscapey. And like, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't actually kick in with the bass and the organ for, you know, half a minute or something. I thought it built nicely. I know again it's it doesn't do a whole lot, but the first verse is just drums, bass and his voice. Second verse, they add in some of this kind of bubbly Hammond, which there's a lot of a lot of Reddit threads out there trying to figure out what the hell uh, D'Angelo's keyboard situation was on this album. So there's a lot of uh, debate around that. But I think it's some kind of Hammond run through something. You guys can see where I'm going we with this. Need, yeah, if there's a Hammond into Rhodes, it's like, oh, well, you're in. <laughs> Adam's in. Yeah, we need yeah. an Adam decision tree, you know, for all these albums. Like, we <laughs> know which way Adam's going to vote in, in advance. <laughs> uh, I Listen, I, I don't hate this song, but there is part of me that's just like, yeah, we get it. You like weed. All right. Like. I wrote stupid songs like this when I was that age and I don't, you know, <laughs> 18. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I just discovered weed. It's amazing. I used to be a nerd and now I smoke weed. Yeah. Let me t- write a song about it. It's like, oh, okay. I get it. The singing's all right. But like the, I, my problem with this song, to be honest, is that the bass is mixed so effing low. It's also very low in and of itself, but like I was expecting more prominent bass in the mix to kind of give it a little bit more of a bed to lay in. Um, but they really mix it on the high end because of all that. Ooh, that he's doing with the falsetto has to cut through. So 
it's not a bad song. I'm not saying I hate the song, but no. mm-hmm. I was over it by the end of the song, definitely. I'm like, it was the time it's to not, the song to end. <laughs> yeah, it's not much of a single, and I do think it overstays its welcome a little bit, like a lot of the tunes do, because you have so few changes. He wrote a good little hook, and it's definitely got some cool texture to it. It's just, it, it overstays its welcome, and and then it's a, it's a gateway to everything else, you know? I see that for a, a lot of these songs. I think the album is 53 minutes and it's I when I when I was running through the timestamps on some of them, I mean, are most of them over five minutes? You know, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six. At least half of the album is over five minutes with one tune in there that's six twenty-four. That's a bit much. And that's also something that I noticed, again, could be a sign of of the times. I, I went and I dug into and listened to a couple of the contemporaries that came out. Erica Badu's Baduism, which I think was a year after this. Maxwell's, uh, it's like Maxwell's Suite, I think was another year after that. And then I even jumped forward to Music Soul Child in 2000, which kind of takes its roots from the, the Neo Soul movement. They're all like an hour. And again, I don't, I don't know if it was a function of we now have CDs. Again, we've talked about this before. Let's get all we can out of this, out of this new medium versus I honestly think this album would have benefited dropping two songs and making everything else three and a half minutes. <laughs> if you came in yeah. at 36 minutes with this album, I would have I would have loved it twice as much as, as I do. There's always the lived experience of listening to the album versus the actual length of the album. And by the time I was getting to the end of this album, I was like, God damn. This, it was, is this a triple album? What's going on here? Right. <laughs> well, this It's also starting to get to that era where people weren't really listening to individual albums. I feel like as I was listening to this this week and thinking of my various complaints, I was thinking this is one of those ones that I think if you surveyed a bunch of people who are around our age – a lot of them would say they like it. Their their memory of it would be very positive. But I think it suffers in that sense from, well, two things. One, what you're really remembering is the thing you were doing when you were listening to the album, which is having young person sex, most likely. <laughs> but that's not representative of what's going on here if you actually sat down and spent an hour with us. Well, that's the difference between... Is this a good song and should I listen to this album? Or are there some good songs in this album and should I listen to this album? Yeah, you know, there's some good songs on the album. I'm not saying it's garbage or anything like that, but I I was defeated by this album on several occasions. Defeated, could not make it through. All right. Well, on that note, let's move. <laughs> let's jump on to track two, which you won't believe is a cover. This is cruising. But that's not actually track two on the album, though, right? No, that that's track two yeah. on our focus list. On our focus list, yeah, yes. my bad. It's it, they bury it a little deeper in the album. with covers that don't change the arrangement at all. This is totally unnecessary. Oh my God, Rob. 
My note here is only slightly less unnecessary than the Gwyneth Paltrow Huey Lewis I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> only slightly less necessary. I wrote the the only thing you added to the song was an extra 30 seconds on something that was already too long. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because the Smokey song is too long and they just chorus, 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 chorus at the very end. He's like, they did chorus, 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 chorus. I did chorus, 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 chorus. <laughs> so you see, I, I, that's how I owned this version of it. It's like Vanilla Ice trying to say how he didn't steal that Queen song. No, we say den, 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 den. Really? All right, dude. All right. So the one thing, my my takeaways on this, and, and then I, I don't think I hated this as much as you guys did. There are songs that exist that I love, but based on when they were recorded, they potentially lack something sonically, which a lot of times is low end. One thing I did like about this, so I, I did plug in my my subwoofer, my nice speakers. This tune hits hard. It's sonically nice and deep compared to the smoky version. So just from a sonic standpoint, I appreciated it. And again, to get nerdy on the keyboard thing here, there's this weird bubbly keyboard thing going on that just melts my brain and I absolutely love. The only way I can describe it is bubbly organ. And you probably hear it, well, you hear it throughout the whole the whole damn song. But No, it, just to be clear, I like the tune. It's a breath of fresh air on this record because I think this album was kind of lacking singles in my listening ears, mind. But... When I listened to the Smokey Robinson version, I was unable to discern those big differences. It sounded remarkably similar. So it just felt like a Smokey Robinson impression. Even his voice and his falsetto, use of falsetto, feels like a very direct impression of of that kind of singing. To be fair, I think that he was probably putting this on the album for a generation of people young kids that he expected were not familiar with Smokey Robinson. So being really familiar like actually intimately familiar with the Smokey robinson version of this song when i heard this one i was just like okay like what but if i had never heard that before it might have blown my mind and like oh wow this is really smooth and great this is right you know about like driving around in a car trying to force a woman to have sex with you that she kind of doesn't want to but she kind of does you know (laughs) (laughs) we needed another rehash of that theme (laughs) i am all for bringing a cover to the attention of a new generation. I think that is a noble exercise, but I still think you have a responsibility to add something to it. And I just don't, despite what Adam just said, I did not hear those aspects of of Sonic Edition. The one thing that I think was a change that perked my ears up a little bit um, on that, we're gonna fly away, glad you're going my way. On the smoky version, the harmonies are like really bright and major. And um, I think he might have gone minor on the harmonies for these, or he did something that made them sound not bright and poppy like that and kind of mellowed it. Gwyneth and Huey do the same thing. They they take a a lower minor (laughs) version of that two part that is very major in the smoky version. Oh. So I'll say that Gwyneth and Huey, uh, they stole from D'Angelo, goddammit. Yeah, because that was later, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, that was, I don't know. 
sometime in the 2000s <laughs> completely unnecessary i i really should look up what was why were they singing together was it for like a toyota ad or something i don't know <laughs> that was a movie or something an ambien ad i don't know oh i think it was movie. that movie duets <laughs> an entire movie about bad karaoke <laughs> yeah right <laughs> I don't know. They're like, listen, Sign me we up. got this leggy blonde chick and she can kind of sing. So let's throw Huey Lewis in there and we'll see if we can make some money off of it. All right. Like, not to not to denigrate Gwyneth Paltrow's acting career. She's she's a gem. <laughs> Is Huey Lewis on the list? I'm very curious. Oh, if sports, if, if sports bet better be on the list. That's a great album. I know I know nothing by Huey Lewis. So. You know, right. you know so everything by Huey Lewis, Adam. How dare you? Well, okay. I, ready? There's this song from Back to the Power Future. Power of Love. Yeah. That's it. Song from That's Back to the I, Future 2. I want a new drug. You want to get back in time. Burn, okay. So we're up to three. Okay. New drug. All right, uh, what else? If this Stuck is with it, you? Please let me know. If this ain't love, baby, just say so. If this is yeah, it, it's one. a great song. This is it, yeah. Not to be confused with the Kenny Loggins song. This I was is gonna it. say, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. We'll see uh, what I have to say about Huey Lewis when the time comes. <laughs> okay, all right. Stuck so with you. I do know some, stuck, some, stuck with you. You must have yeah. stuck with you. That sounds okay, terrible. Okay, all right. I all right. I know yes, some Huey Lewis. It's then. true. <laughs> Oh God! Can we get off this stupid All right, let's, fucking version? Yeah, <laughs> let, let's let's uh, get on to our next tune and our focus list called "Me and Those Dreaming Eyes of Mine." Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Song title there, that'll fit very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really, really flows off the yeah. tongue there. Okay, this one jumped out to me as one of the most original tunes, maybe my favorite tune. It had some interesting rhythms in it. It feels a little more like modern music, not just a complete rehash of old tropes. It's definitely too long, and I was definitely tired by the time we got to this. What is this track four or five? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it stood out to me a little bit because it wasn't just a straight vamp. It had some twists and turns to it. This is the one that I put down specifically. This is the point on the album where I was overloaded on D'Angelo's voice. Because there's so many yeah, of his voice yeah, on this track. It's obscene. There, there was a moment in Sing 2, which my kids have been listening to constantly, and uh, there, there's one of those songs where they're redoing, like, I guess it's a U2 song and all the characters are singing and they're just all doing that uh, Christina Aguilera vocal, just, uh, and there, there's like six characters all doing that at once. And it's just noise. And I feel like that was my reference point for a couple of spots on this album where it's 12 of him and he's scatting and going all over the, and it's just when there's so much of that, it's, 
it might as well be like a wall of, of, of pink noise. By the way, Adam, I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one suffering through the hell of a daughter who's obsessed with Sing 2. Sing 2 soundtrack. And I keep being like, you want to listen to the Alicia Keys version, version of it? You want to listen yes. to the U2 version? No, no interest yeah. in that whatsoever. Why would I want to listen to that? I don't want to listen to Aretha Franklin do Say a Little Prayer for You. Why would I want to listen to that masterpiece when I can listen to a fucking elephant singing sing too? Even The Weeknd. The Weeknd has a song on there and like they, they cut it down to a kid's bop, like 30 second version. And I'm like, oh, The Weeknd's version is actually kind of cool. Sorry. I'm sure I lost some street cred there. Yeah, well, listen, all of the the young Gen Z kids that are listening to this podcast right now are agreeing with you heavily on the weekend. We really, yes. really crush it in the 14 to 24 demographics. So. <laughs> so in this tune, though, this is where you really hear the drunk drums, which I, I totally dig. This is the one song that Quest was talking about where he live tried to play this drum beat over a root song and everyone freaked out. And he went into some details that there was a hip hop producer in the mid nineties named Jay Dilla. I'm not super familiar. If you guys sure. have heard of him. Yeah. His big thing was that when he was programming drum beats, he would turn off the quantize and just mm. feel it. And just, so you wound up with these pockets of measures or bars where it's it's pretty tight and then like the next pocket is real loose and real draggy and then it will come back up and that was actually kind of a feel that uh, quest love was talking about it's like the jay dilla feel which is like super loose uh well, which I, I thought was pretty damn cool hold on that i mean that's also just a human being's feel right maybe we should clarify for the audience what quantized means it's auto-tuned for rhythm, basically. Yes, yeah, it's yes, auto-tuned for rhythm. Thank you. That's perfect. Exactly. Yes. And and what I've always heard is that neurologically, what you're really hearing when you hear, you know, Stevie Wonder play drums or something that feels like a deep groove, it's a human being playing. And so even though they are playing on the beat 100 percent and they're good at their instrument, you're hearing these micro deviations from the beat that you perceive as particularly funky. And it's one of the reasons that if you are an astute listener, you can almost always tell when it's a drum machine, meaning a beat that has been quantized right exactly on the, it sounds like a robot versus a human. You can tell the difference pretty easily. Well, one of the things with a lot of drum machines now is you can have a little, basically like an error percentage that it will sort of randomly have it be a little bit above or behind by a certain percentage and you can kind of oh, make that. it sound yeah, like this much of a human like, yeah the yeah. robots are already ahead of the game <laughs> they really are <laughs> how many beers has this robot had yeah <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, I want me at three beers and they're like, we don't have error bars that large in this calculation here so <laughs> well just think of the, of the of the polar opposites you've got Donald Fagan, who makes a machine called Irvin or Merlin oh, or whatever Wendell. that geeky name, Wendell. Was. Wendell, <laughs> calling it Merlin would have been so infinitely <laughs> cooler, <Much> better. <laughs> yeah. But they made a machine because they didn't like humans, right? He was like, "I need this to be one thousand percent correct," and you swing this way, and they're like, "Machines are terrible. Can we get this a little more drunky, humany?" So I thought that was kind of fun. I also wish that they had given the guitar a little more room in this song to, to go to town. There's a nice little solo in there. I think that's Bob Power playing the guitars there. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I, th- I think we might be coming up on another song where they did give the guitar way too much room. So I don't know. But, you know, maybe they <laughs> call it out in case I miss it. All right. We're going to move things along here to uh, the fourth song on our focus list here. This one's called Shit Damn Motherfucker. Why are you sleeping with my woman? Why are you? Listen, besides the uh, fact that we finally got Adam to say fuck <laughs> on this podcast. Um, it took D'Angelo to say it. It took D'Angelo to <laughs> say it. It happened, yeah. You guys are going to 100% disagree with me. My favorite song on the album. I, li- oh. I like this song a lot, actually. This song sucks. I like this so song a bad. lot. Sexiest murder ever. Listen, the oh, lyrics are <laughs> stupid as fuck. They're the dumbest lyrics. Sexiest lyri- murder I have least gangster line ever. I'm telling you what's on my mind. I'm about to go get my nine and kill both of your behinds. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody said that to me, I'd be like, okay, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, sure, but buddy. the instrumentation on this is really crazy good. I, I like the one that no. kind of drop out to those walking bass parts. It's great. I disagree. The instrumentation and the tones specifically are what jumped out to me as being terrible. It starts with just a couple bass drum hits. That bass drum tone is flabby as all hell. Like, did they forget to bring the drum key to tighten uh, that thing up? No, what no, is going uh, on? I was. I, I think that that's a synthetic kick. I'm pretty sure that's a that's a synthetic because it sounds the exact same every time. There's no like variation in the pressure with which they're hitting it. And that's 1995 okay. drum machine technology. Well, and fine. It, sounds, it's, it's, it sounds like shit. Don't get me wrong. It's it's bad. And it, they did not use it on some of the other tracks. The other one, this is the guitar one where the wah guitar sounds like Donald Duck. Like this is not <laughs> good. <laughs> I, I like this song. I don't, I really, I just have a, I'm just a sucker for like the momentary drop into a walking bass line that then immediately settles down into something else. I liked it. This is the one that stuck out to me upon first listen. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That like popped me out of my slumber and uh, it caught my attention. And then as I listened back to it, I'm like, yeah, this is dumb. This is cheesy. And I like it. It's it's got, it's like the nothing can stop me now. Nothing's going to stop us now with this fucking album, right? Like, Right. Which you said you liked, but then wouldn't agree that you actually liked. I'm oh, no. a little confused about no, that. No, no, no. I fucking love that song. All right. <laughs> I know that song sucks and I love it. <laughs> This, it kept reminding me of, do you remember that Reggie Watts? Is that the guy's name? Reggie Watts song, Fuck Shit Stack. Oh, where yeah, yeah. Where he's mocking music like this. And, yeah. and he's also making it up as he goes along, which that would, you know, that would buy D'Angelo more more, more credit here if, yeah. if I thought this was off the cuff. But my biggest my biggest problem with this is that it's, it's synth bass. And they got me for a while that I thought it wasn't synth bass. Oh. And then... There's a one time where he does like, um, it's like basically if you listen at like 322, like right around there, they just kind of do those slides up. And if you listen to it very loud, you can hear the of like sliding up a keyboard as opposed to going up a fretboard. So. The bump is bleeding so much. Why? I was disappointed by that. 
Verse three cracks me up. Why the both of yous bleeding so much? Yeah. He says yous. I think he's from Delaware That's County here in yeah. Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to go get a hoagie from the wall wall. Yous going to the Walmarts. Uh, so that was funny. But yeah, I mean, and then the third verse is like, it's so high school. Why am I wearing handcuffs? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Like really? I know. I, I, I feel like we would have written this maybe even in eighth grade. Some of those eighth grade lyrics are pretty sweet. I dig that this was uh, kind of minor and sinister. Versus everything else on the album was just kind of minor and sexy. This was minor and sinister. But one thing I will say, evil in there. Even for the album, even for the song in the album where he's talking about my woman is cheating on me and I'm going to murder her and her lover. There's not a lot of emoting going on. It's still no. pretty even. Like you pop four Xanax and you're just like, whoa, why are you cheating on me? <laughs> Why am I covered in blood? Why did I just murder I, you? I guess I'm going to jail for the rest of my natural life. <laughs> and it's five minutes and 14 it's seconds long. long. It's crazy. Oh my long. God. Long, long. Yes. Yeah, <sighs> if you wanted me to take it seriously, you would not have titled it Shit Damn Motherfucker. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. That's why I kind of dig it. It's, it's, it's the one on the album that seems to take itself a little less seriously than the rest of them. But... <laughs> I will concede that that is probably a minority opinion for a good reason. <laughs> All right, let's let's bring this thing home. We're going to check out the last track on our focus list. This one is Lady. Take note, this was also, actually, this was written by Raphael Sadiq, and I think this one was given to D'Angelo uh, to be a single, I believe. So here it is, Lady. All right, Rob, I'm going to ask you a very specific question, and you're probably going to tell me that I'm crazy. Did this remind you of the beginning of that unicorn song, Ghost Mountain? The very, very <laughs> beginning, which is like the drum beats. Go back and listen to the beginning, like eight seconds of this, and listen to the beginning, like eight seconds of Ghost Mountain, and tell me if they're not like the exact same thing. The entire time I couldn't get over it. I was like, now I just want to be listening to the unicorns and not this, because I'm so fucking over this album by this point. <laughs> it did not give me that feeling, but uh, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, I see what you're talking about, but uh, a lot less toy instrument going on. Well, yeah, I'm talking about just the drums and like, okay, kind all right, fair enough, yeah. yeah. Definitely go listen to that Unicorns album, uh, folks, great. if you want some tones, baby. <laughs> I this was uh, I like this song. I thought it was the only one that did actually stand out as a single. So I guess it was the actual single of the record. Is that correct? Yeah, it's one of them. Yeah, Pro- probably the. Uh, I think it was like the third single. Yeah, it was third yeah, third single. single. Yeah. It. I do. I don't think there was a lot going on. And traditionally, I, I would call it a single because I felt like the hook was good or interesting. I didn't really feel like that was what was going on here. But it was tonally differentiated from the other tunes. You know, you had guitars coming back to a human sounding guitar. You had the claps over the snare drum effect, which is a very common effect. But I didn't really notice it, at least as prominently anywhere else on the record. You had the, a little bit of the acoustic piano giving it some 
you know, it just gave it like a wider set of dynamics generally. There was some cool little bluesy piano riffs in there that showed off his playing a little more effectively. So, yeah, I liked it for those reasons. There was an actual bridge as well at 220. I don't know that there were a lot of bridges on this album. I, I think it did suffer from that just play the same four chords for six minutes. I'm trying to remember any of the bridges. If they were there, they were not differentiated enough to be memorable. I'll say that. The fact that this one stuck out in my head as, ooh, that's a bridge, kind of tells you and something. And the one song that wasn't written by him. So, Well, I guess right. one of the two songs that wasn't written by Writ- him. Written with him, sorry. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the official credits are that it was uh, Raphael Sadiq and D'Angelo. Now, is Raphael Sadiq Tony, Tony, or Tony? Do you know? Um, <laughs> that's, good. that's fantastic thank you Rob uh, we needed that he's tone okay <laughs> my mic just cut out I, I said Tony 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 and it just it broke yeah, I think yeah. there blame Zoom sure no. um, <laughs> Raphael Sadiq's a cool guy too I've, uh, I've listened to some of his stuff he's a bit more I, I think he harkens back to a uh, maybe the 50s, 60s kind of style. But again, he's 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 an instrumentalist. He's a vocalist. He plays guitar. It's, it's a nice kind of organic feel around a lot of his he stuff. He is, yep. a, I believe, a New Jack Swing. That's what they call that style, right? New Jack Swing. They did back then. But I mean, Raphael Sadiq's continued making records. I've listened to a couple of his more recent mm-hmm. records and he's, yeah, he's pretty cool. All right. Well, I guess it's not still called New Jack Swing. If you, I, I actually have no idea. Yeah. All right. Maybe it is. <laughs> yeah. Gentlemen, I need you to go to the two minute and 24 second mark. So go to like 220, turn your headphones up loud, and at 224, listen to the bass note. Our good friend from high school uh, who used to play, play drums with he, we used to refer to when something really low would happen, it would be a drop R just to be <laughs> completely ridiculous. So you had that drop R note in there where it's like you loosen the string so much it's just flapping. That's That stuck out in my head. I hit rewind instantly. It was like, oh, that's the brown note. Yeah. That is fantastic. Well done. I've never heard. That's a fun little phrase. I've never heard you guys use that, but that it makes no sense. That's why I like it. <laughs> right. Dro- yeah, we're in drop R. What? <laughs> All right. So uh, that's going to, uh, sorry, anything else on you Lady? You know what? I will, I will point out, I really like the guitar work on this song. Bob Power, great job. I think that's Bob Power on the guitar. Just the kind of like little arpeggiated stuff in the background. Very tasteful. Mm-hmm. Very good. That's the yeah. one thing in this song that stuck out to me. I thought it was ridiculously repetitive. And the word lady, I didn't do a word count of how many times lady appears, but it's got to be in the fucking 40s. Like, there's so many <laughs> ladies in the <this> song. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I, I I agree with that. The instruments are what stood out to me. It was the drum sounded a little different. The guitar work was good. The p- piano was kind of cool. Little licks in there. So, yeah. All right, gents, we're going to wrap this thing up. So that was our last track. That was Lady. Next up, as we do every week, we're going to throw things around the room here to get the votes from Rob and Tom to see if you really think this needs to be on the list of the 1001 albums you have to hear before you die. Let's go to Rob first. Yeah, this is classic style over substance, in my opinion. It is perfectly acceptable to put this on in a dimly lit suburban basement after the spring formal while you sip Long Island iced teas or some other similarly terrible high school drink. But is it essential? No. I think none of these tracks 
transcends pleasant, ignorable makeout music. And, I'll, you know, we didn't really mention the follow-up record, which came, I think, several years later, five yeah, years later. he took a long break, like five years or something, voodoo. And I'll admit, I'm not super familiar with it, but I did listen to it, glanced through it a couple times this week, and that did feel more modern, more, you know, I could I could sense some some progression in the writing, and it, it, it stuck out to me here a little more. So it's a no for me on this one, but would consider going farther into his catalog. Tom, uh, I'm going to echo what you said, Rob, that Voodoo is clearly the superior album to this one. If this was going to make it onto the list, it would make it onto the list because of what it spawned, which I'm tempted to give it a yes because of that. But I'll just go ahead and say what I've said many times before. Just listen to those things. You don't need to hear this to understand why Erica Badu was good or why Lauren Hill was good. You don't need that to you don't need this to point the direction there. Voodoo is a good album. I l- like you, Rob, not super familiar with it, but I did listen to it this week and I thought it was way better than this album. I don't hate D'Angelo and I get the sense that D'Angelo hated being famous. Wasn't a big fan of it. And I can kind of feel for the guy on that. Um, so in service of not furthering the torment of D'Angelo, I will tell you all don't listen to this album. How <laughs> kind of you. Every time you listen, every stream, he has to do a crunch. (laughs) He's not doing any crunches these days. (laughs) So I am going to piggyback on something you guys said about Voodoo. I think that album is arguably better. That was a breakthrough album, but I think Brown Sugar is a breakout album for a 21-year-old who's coming into the game and coming in hard against what was going on at the time. Uh, Tom, to kind of piggyback on something else you said, which is the things that it kind of inspired. And this this was kind of the first in a long list of neo-soul albums to come out. And just getting into the music Soul Child this week, that Erica Badu first album and that, that first Maxwell album, I just had those three on repeat in addition to this this D'Angelo album all week. And it just, it put me in a good spot. I just dig the vibes. I dig the sound. So for me, it's a yes. But unfortunately, even my sway as host this week will not <laughs> do it for Mr. Johnny Abs, Mr. D'Angelo, Mr. Falsetto himself. So I am sorry, D'Angelo, but uh, it's a no from the group here. So you'll you'll be fine as you cry cry in falsetto potentially i wonder how he came up with the name d'angelo because his name's michael archer which is also not right. it's like not an uncool name or anything like that i think yeah, it's he, pretty cool i think he originally went to michelangelo and mm-hmm. then went from there maybe it was while he was running that crew in the low rises that he decided to come up with the name <laughs> d'angelo yes we're all just pawns <laughs> yeah you see <laughs> adam i'm just by the way i'm just gonna get shot in the dark yeah. you've never watched the wire have you no, we I covered it on so this podcast. Yeah, it means nothing. He has to so me. many things wrong with him, but this is really one of the biggest. <laughs> yeah, right. It really is. Fucking President Obama says you should watch The Wire. There, <laughs> necessary viewing. There are so many pop culture things I have not read, watched, or listened to, which is why I'm on this podcast. Woo. All right, so we are going to throw things over to uh, Tom. We're going to go to Tom and the Albinator to get our assignment for next. <laughs> Week. I like how you blanked on my name for a second and we've known each other for literally 37 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks, Adam. T- Terry, T-Boz, Tone. I don't know. 
All right. Uh, let's get that albinator out. And uh, before I am insulted anymore by one of my oldest and dearest friends, I will run the <laughs> albinator so we can get off this call. <laughs> Next week, we will be listening to... Uh, I have no idea what this is or what it's going to sound like in any way, shape, or form. The artist is called Gang of Four, and the album is called Entertainment. Uh, okay. Like, yeah. Somehow I I feel like this is going to be false advertising on this album. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, like, if there's four members of this band and they call their album Al- Entertainment, I can't imagine their lyrics are going to be that deep because it's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> like the easiest. No, I don't. Yeah, I don't know what this is either. To be honest, I have a preconceived notion, but I don't believe I've heard a note of this music before. What what genre? Hang on, I'm very hard curious. and fast was going to be my guess. Hard and fast. Okay. Um, oh, let's see. English post punk band. Oh, Jesus. from 1976. Fing Christ. Oh, that's going to be fun. <laughs> Man, you could not have picked more uh, a more polar. You know. Oh God. Uh, opposite here of, of we, we take big swings this album takes big swings once you installed that Oof. update man we started just going all haywire tom <laughs> yeah you know what i think i'm gonna i think i'm gonna revert back i still got those old floppies <laughs> with the original programming on it revert back uh now this should be interesting because uh i'm listen listeners prove us wrong at 1001 albums complaints at gmail.com but i'm just gonna guess that this album sucks and we have the most fun talking about albums that suck so i think it's gonna be a great week next week oh i'm very excited positive mental attitude is always good all right and on that note we're gonna sign off here 1001 album complaints i am adam i'm rob and i'm tom 